When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford. You can find out more about Worldview at worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we feature stories and conversations about planetary change. I'm Mike Osborne, and today on our show, we're bringing you a conversation with astrobiologist David Grinspoon, who recently published a book, Earth in Human Hands. Grinspoon is a longtime friend of our show, in part because he has a unique ability to excite the Earth science imagination and think about the Anthropocene in ways that we're not used to hearing. For example, one of the questions that drives his new book is, What if life isn't something that happens on a planet, but something that happens to a planet? In other words, what if the planet itself is alive? How does that change our understanding of the Anthropocene? His book is available on December 6th, a great holiday gift, and can be found at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and pretty much everywhere books are sold. Our producer, Miles Traer, caught up with David recently to learn more about the book. So I have to start with the obvious question, and it's the question that probably gets asked of you more than any other one, which is, why did you want to write this book? Well, this is kind of an outgrowth of an idea that I've had for a long time. Um, I feel like the nucleus of the idea for this book has been in my mind for, uh, for over a decade. And that is to try to describe the particular stage we're at in cosmic evolution and how that reflects upon our situation here on Earth. And then, you know, I started in uh, really 2012 hearing people talking about the Anthropocene as this new thing that was being discussed. And I thought, well, this is great that it's being discussed, but it's also, it's not a new idea for me. The the notion that with humans on earth and everything we're doing on and to the planet that we've entered a fundamentally new time is something that is an idea that I've been fascinated with for, for much longer than people have been talking about the Anthropocene using that term. So to me, it it gave sort of new relevance to this idea of of trying to write 
about that. It's like, oh, now there's a name for that, and, and everybody's talking about it. But uh, and, and, and you know, I, I, I'm not the only one that was thinking about it. I was reading um, Stanislaw Lem and other people like that have been talking for a long time about uh, this this moment in time when when this change comes to Earth as a result of uh, technological activity and and how we're going to perceive of ourselves as part of this this longer history of the Earth. And so, uh, but when I heard people using that term and talking about this, and it seemed like there was this new buzz about it, I thought, oh, well, I really have to, really have to try to write this. And then I got this great opportunity at the Library of Congress to be chair of astrobiology, which I applied and said, hey, I want to write a book about the astrobiology of, of the Anthropocene. And, uh, and they bought it and supported me for a year to go and, and work on this. And that ultimately became... Uh, Game Earth in Human Hands. And that was one of the. It was one of the reasons that I actually. I, I. I think that we connected four years ago was because I loved the sort of astrobiological view of the Anthropocene. Sort of rather than try to analyze it while sitting here on the surface, fly up, go to space, turn around and look back. You know that that's that's sort of a, a different perspective and not a perspective that a lot of people who talk about the Anthropocene view it. Was that your experience too, of sort of seeing like, oh, wait a minute, that you know that sort of higher view, the sort of legitimately one hundred mile high view, is a little bit different. Yeah, and it came out of my background as a planetary scientist, and you know what I what I've been doing for my career is studying evolution of planetary environments and the ways that planets change, including sometimes catastrophically change. And one way to look at the Anthropocene is something new fundamentally that's happening to the planet now. So then that's not sort of a human-centered view, well, what's happening to us? What are we doing? But but a planet-centered view, what's happening to the planet? <laughs> and and uh, and so coming from a planetary science viewpoint, uh, it just felt natural to try to uh, reframe the discussion in that way and describe it as an event in planetary evolution and then sort of see if, if changing the framing in that way could, could be useful, could help us to, uh, to think of ourselves in, in, in a new way. One of the things that sort of speaks to that perspective is was the subsection as it was a subchapter that was later in in the book that was called one galactic year uh, or one galactic year from now. And it was, you know, not thinking about time and in the sense of how long it takes Earth to go around the sun, but how long it takes the sun to do an orbit around the galaxy. And that messed with me like, in a really profound way because I'm not, I, I'm a geologist and I think on those time scales, but not for the Anthropocene, right? It's all about what's happening now and the rates and things have never changed. And that like really screwed with me. Were there things that screwed with you from that kind of a perspective with those time scales, those space scales, something like that? Yeah, it, it's, it's fun to try to use a really different metric and, and useful to try to use use a really different metric to to measure time even for those of us uh earth scientists space scientists who are used to thinking in much larger time frames than uh you know than people going about their daily lives it's still valuable to sort of force ourselves into um a frame where we use a very different metric so i i started thinking about the the galactic year the fact that earth 
that, that Earth with the sun travels around the center of the galaxy uh, basically every 225 million years. And that's an interesting marker. So, so about one galactic year ago, Earth was just recovering from, uh, the, from the great dying, the uh, permal triassic extinction, the, the worst thing ever, that ever happened on Earth. 96% uh, of species wiped out, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and then, so then that leads to the question, well, what about one galactic year in the future? Uh, what, what will the Earth be like, and what will, what will our time seem like for anybody be they descendants of ours or or somebody from another planet or some other species that evolves to the point where they can do science what if they're digging up the record and looking back on our time what will our time seem like from from that uh distant vantage point it's just another um kind of fun way to to ask you know are we a blip or are we possibly the beginning of some sustained transition um so so i found that useful uh as a framing. Um, as far as other ideas that kind of blew my mind, well, one thing that happened while I was working on this book was that I met a lot of people from other disciplines who were interested in some of the same questions. And that was one of the great things about working at the Library of Congress and working here in Washington, D.C. with there are just so many other scholars from, from different fields at the Smithsonian and, and people working in different branches of the humanities at, at the library. Uh, and, and so I, I had a lot of interesting conversations and interactions that led to some revelations. One example is I met, I became friends with a guy named Rick Potts. And Rick is a uh, paleoanthropologist at the Smithsonian. And he, he goes to Africa every summer and digs up fossils and, uh, and learns about human evolution. And one thing that he's determined is that the major steps in human evolution, a lot of them, all the, the sort of major um, development of some of the capacities that we think of as most important to being human, upright walking, um, larger cranium size, use of fire, a lot of these sort of signature moments in becoming human coincided with periods of climate havoc in Africa. In other words, if you look at the long-term climate history of Africa, there are there's a lot of over the last few million years there, there's a lot of periods of uh, stretches of stasis where things didn't change that much, and then there are periods where the climate gets chaotic and and goes sort of haywire and and things get hotter and colder and there's ice ages and hothouses, and a lot of the innovations in human evolution has determined through his research have coincided with those moments, those times in history when humans were challenged to, or, or our human, our, our pre-human ancestors were challenged to deal with climate chaos. And that was interesting to me for, for a number of reasons. One, it shows that in a certain sense we're evolved to be um, climate survival experts that our great flexibility and a lot of the capacities we have came about through responding to climate change. And that gives me a little bit of hope for the future because it's some of those same capacities, our great flexibility, our ability to uh, sort of reinvent ourselves in various ways that I think we, we'll need to draw upon in new ways to survive this, this new stage of climate havoc that, 
that we're, we're introducing ourselves because we evolved to be so damn clever, <laughs> got ourselves into trouble. But, but another interesting aspect of that is that I realized, again, from my planetary point of view, that that introduces another interesting connection between the solar system and human evolution, because the main driver for a lot of that long-term climate evolution and those cycles of stasis and then chaos, the long-term driver for that is what we call the Milankovitch cycles, which are uh, changes in Earth's spin and orbit that are driven by the other planets, mostly by Jupiter. So there's this strange way in which the, the gravitational tug of Jupiter and its effect on the Earth has driven climate change in Africa, which in turn has driven human evolution. And so to me, that was just a really interesting connection to make and something that I hadn't really thought about until I started this project and started meeting people and talking to people like Rick. Yeah, you need you need at least a couple of beers before you sit down and really think about that one, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, it was Jupiter tugging on the Earth that, that in a roundabout way made us start to to walk upright. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> I, I, this was actually an interesting, an interesting sort of, of theme or, or I guess trend that I saw, and I don't know if I'm right, but one of the one of the approaches that you seem to take to the Anthropocene was definitely, you know, documenting what I would call the canonical Anthropocene knowledge: climate change, change of agriculture, land use, urbanization, all of that. But you seemed more interested in sort of longer term thinking. Was that like a, a conscious decision to sort of say, no, we just we accept climate change is real. Let's move on and ask the next question, sort of the so what? It was a conscious decision. I mean, it, it was interesting. I mean, I actually did sit down to think about that. How many pages in this book do I want to devote to documenting the case that we are causing climate change? Because on the one hand, it's sort of central to what this is all about. On the other hand, there are a lot of books that cover that well and probably better than I could. My point was to say, okay, well, yeah, that's a small but very important piece of a larger picture, which is, okay, so that's what's happening right now. Yes, we accept that. But what are the implications for a century, a millennium? In the future and how does this relate to the bigger picture uh, in um, sort of cosmic time and our role once we've accepted that then in a certain sense our work is just beginning well and that that was another that was another really unique theme I'll say something that I haven't seen in a lot of other uh, you know books papers radio anything about the Anthropocene is you know, people have argued when's the start date, and in many ways that's just kind of an academic exercise, but you seem to look at the Anthropocene not necessarily in terms of moment or even transition, but more as implication for what future geological eras or periods or, or even longer might look like. And I was wondering how you sort of came to see the Anthropocene in those terms. To me... The really interesting question is not, okay, when precisely did this begin, but what is it and where is it going and when will it end? Will it end or is there some way in which it doesn't have to? Um, and so, yeah, I was drawn to the more sort of philosophical question of, you know, what does this mean about our role on Earth and what is really new here? Uh, there are 
other species that have changed the planet before. Uh, you know, the obvious example is the cyanobacteria oxygenating the planet and, you know, creating all this oxygen that we think is wonderful, but that was a big disaster for, for other species. Oh, yeah, that, that was happened. a catastrophe when that happened. Poisonous. Yeah. And, and, and that's not the only example. If you, if you look at the history of Earth, there are a lot of examples of life itself changing the planet. So we're not the first to do that. But I came to develop the idea that what's really new and in sort of a startling way is that now cognitive processes are a part of the functioning of the planet for the first time ever that you know whatever it is that allows us to have thoughts and make decisions and build things uh, you know all of our technological um, activity in some sense is an outgrowth of this new evolution of a new kind of cognitive activity that has now become an earth system so for the first time there cognition is changing the planet and not only that it's self-aware geological change that uh you know there have been plenty of new kinds of uh, new events that have changed the earth in various ways but this is the first time there's been a geological force that is aware of its own activity and uh that to me is a, is a major development uh it's not just another species making another change it's a fundamentally new kind of change on the earth, but that self-awareness, I think, also implies the possibility of a new mode of interacting with the planet, that, uh, that there's at least the possibility of a more thoughtful, engaged, engaged kind of mode where, um, where self-aware life sees what it is doing, realizes that it's having an effect, and takes action to modify that effect. So, so that way of thinking of what we are, um, to me, is both sort of shocking, but then ultimately gives us a sliver of, uh, of perhaps hope that through that realization, we can be empowered to, uh, to change course. Well, and that, that self-awareness that you're sort of talking about, that, that cognitive awareness of, you know, we're the ones making the change, it, certainly what we found on our show is that makes a lot of people nervous, you know, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable, and and you write about that in in the book, but that sort of drives to this this bigger question or this bigger viewpoint that you have, which is the Anthropocene dilemma. And can you just explain what that is so that everyone's kind of on that same page? Yeah, I mean, just first of all, I I agree it's it's unsettling uh, <laughs> this knowledge that that the of self aware uh, global change. In fact. My title, Earth in Human Hands, uh, I've noticed the book isn't even out yet, but I've noticed that some people um, object to it or, <laughs> or are offended by it. Yeah. And, and to me, that's great because I think it is a little bit offensive. The notion that Earth is in our hands, it's like, who are we to – we don't know what we're doing. We don't deserve this. Why – you know – are we in charge of this place? That's pretty frightening because uh, literally we don't know what we're doing. But I think it's also an acknowledgement of reality. We are um, having a big effect. So Earth is in our hands in that sense. It's, uh, you know, maybe we don't know. Uh, we're, we're bobbling it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're not necessarily steadily holding it and moving it somewhere on purpose. But you cannot deny our presence and the effect we're having. And so in that sense, 
we have to acknowledge that Earth indeed is in human hands. Now, the problem is that that we don't know what we're doing. And that gets to uh, what you asked about this phrase I use, the Anthropocene dilemma, which is that we have obviously um, are now in a certain sense controlling aspects of the Earth system, but we're not in control. That is, we are having global effects, but we don't have global agency. We don't have a sense of ourselves as a global entity. So whenever you have any kind of creature that that has a wider domain of influence than has a domain of influence that's wider than its domain of awareness that's trouble in the in reading the story it was it was really fun to meet the some of the characters some people one might call a little bit crazy but the good kind of crazy my kind of crazy who have really thought about the 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 planet and and humans and humanity in those terms and throughout they're sort of sprinkled throughout the book there's Carl Sagan, Lim Margulis and Vladimir Vernadsky am i getting those names right we hope <laughs> yes okay and i wanted to sort of focus on those three in in particular and what they how did their points of view sort of shape your constructed view of the Anthropocene. Yeah, well, as you said, they're all uh, characters. And um, I think maybe in some overall sense that comes from the fact that people that have a passion for some idea and are driven by that are a little bit different from most of us who are driven by normal human uh, quotidian concerns and that makes for some just some interesting people you know but um well so how did they have an effect on me um sagan of course famously uh started off writing that book the cosmic connection and i uh grew up around him and hearing his ideas and and sort of inspired and excited by uh, a lot of what he did and had to say and yeah he infused everything his view of everything with that kind of cosmic viewpoint of seeing us and our existence on this much wider stage in space and in time so so obviously he was a, a huge influence um with lynn margulis she was of course a great biologist and she had uh, and she was a very inspiring teacher and and mentor and uh, influenced me a lot and she had a very particular perspective about the relationship between life and the planet of course lynn was was co-founder with with uh, jim lovelock of of the gaia hypothesis and she saw life as this cooperative network on the earth uh, and really as um, as a property of the earth that uh, you couldn't really you can't really meaningfully um, disentangle the living from the non-living parts of the earth that in in some sense it's all a large biogeochemical system and that 
this influenced my this definitely influenced my view especially in thinking about earth in the context of other planets and what life is on a planet that life is not just something that happens on a planet but that life is something that happens to a planet and so i started thinking a lot about life as a kind of stage in the development of a planet um and then that that sort of set that sort of frames for me the discussion then about um, the Anthropocene and has life on Earth reached now a new stage where the relationship between life and the planet is changing again because of this cognitive activity that is doing weird new things to the planet. Uh, and, and you also mentioned Vladimir Vernadsky. Well, Vernadsky was a pioneering geochemist who's very famous in Russia and in Russia, he's acknowledged along with Darwin and Galileo as sort of one of the heroes of the scientific revolution. He's not as well known in the U.S., and that's too bad. I think that has to do a little bit with history and the Iron Curtain and uh, sort of things like that. But Vernadsky was an amazing thinker in the um, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. In Russia, he um, really came up with the Gaia hypothesis before Lovelock and Margulis did, or, or something very similar. He invented the concept of the biosphere. Vernadsky also invented, or maybe co-invented with T.R. de Chardin, the concept of the nuosphere, that the biosphere had given rise to this new, this new mode of change through us, the, the, the domain of thinking, uh, self-aware technological life that was changing the planet. He called that the nuosphere. And, and another thing I learned that I found very moving was I, I read something that Vernadsky wrote at the beginning of World War II um, when the world all around him was sort of uh, burning down. You know, that was uh, just this horrible disaster was starting. Nobody knew where it was going. And yet at the same time, Vernadsky was writing about the nuosphere and what he saw as the long-term evolution of the planet and of intelligence on the planet to a more enlightened time in this sort of cosmic evolution sense. And he acknowledged while he was writing that, that it was strange to be describing that at the same time as that in his daily life and, and, and around him, it seemed as though the world was falling apart. And he said something to the effect of, that doesn't change the way I see this, that even though what's happening now is frightening and, um, and dim, that I still see these forces, these wider forces as inevitable and, and as inevitably leading us toward this more enlightened future. And that really moved me because here I am writing this book about the Anthropocene and our sort of 10,000 year, even million year viewpoint where we might be going in the future. And there's a sense in which that leads me to, to a kind of optimistic view because when I draw upon our deeper past, I see that humanity has faced existential crises before and found ways to reinvent ourselves and thrive. And I think we can do that again in the future. 
I think a lot of times people talk about this as though this is the end time, right? Like all of all of time has led to this moment. And it's just a really helpful reminder that we're in the middle of history. You know, we're not at the end of it. And I was wondering if that played into sort of the organization of of the book was was it seemed to me anyway that that was kind of the underlying message throughout the entire story was no 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 stop thinking about this as the end start thinking about this as the middle and then let's go from there yeah absolutely absolutely i think you're right we we're plagued by this end time thinking in a couple of ways and one is just that you know there's all these these uh, prophecies of doom now you know i think rightfully a lot of people have sounded the alarm about climate change, and that's good. You know, we've got to be concerned and get our act together. But some people have taken home the wrong message from that, which is we're doomed. This is the end. You know, lights out, and that's that's unproductive, dangerous, and and wrong thinking. It's much more correct to say, yeah, we've got a challenging century ahead of us, or two maybe, and then and then what? Things are going to keep going in some fashion, and we've got to think about the long-term plan. And and scientists tend to maybe unwittingly represent our time as sort of the end of this long progression. I was at a talk recently, a really good talk um, that a science writer gave about his new book, and it was about biological evolution. And he was talking about the history of Earth, and he did this thing that I've done before, where he walked across the stage and he said, okay, on this end, this is the origin of the Earth, and on this end, this is now four and a half billion years later. And then he walked across and said, so here's a billion years ago, here's two billion years ago, and you know, sort of all the things that have happened, which is a good technique. But when I saw him do that, I got an idea in my head. And that was, when I give talks about this book, I'm going to do the same thing, but I'm going to go to the middle of the stage and say, this is now. And that left side of the stage, that's the origin of the earth. And then here's a billion years ago here. And then it keeps going. What happens a billion years in the future and two billion years? And let's not represent, you know, and this always, people do this too in the cosmic calendar. Like, you know, okay, the earth formed in January 1st and now it's, you know, 1159 on December 31st. But the problem with that is then, okay, then what? Then it's New Year's and it's all over? No. So um, I'm going to, if I do the cosmic calendar, I'm going to say, okay, now it's the summer solstice. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So I want—I I do want to promote this view. And in fact, there's a there's a piece of artwork in in the book um, where uh, I commissioned this uh, this wonderful artist named Aaron Gronstall to do a geologic time scale. You know, the the thing that you always see with the different layers of different colors representing our time and the the different eras and. Time of the dinosaurs and, and ice ages going and into all the, that. Yeah. into the past. But I had him do one where it keeps going into the future. And I have this new eon that we're just beginning that I call the Sapiozoic, which is the possibility, at least, of wise, um, a, a wise earth of, of wisdom being incorporated into the operation of the earth. And there's a lot of question marks and sort of fuzzy lines where you can't really see what's happening in the future in, the, in this drawing that, that he and I came up with. But, but the point is... Let's conceive of a geologic time scale where this is not the top layer. This is we're somewhere in the middle. One of the one of the questions and and I guess issues that I struggled with in, in reading through your book was this idea on this long time scale, this cosmic time scale of of life and what we're doing and what kinds of changes we've made. 
and it's a question we try to address on the show a lot, which is what does it mean to be human, but specifically what does it mean to be human today? What is it to be human in the Anthropocene when we do have this kind of control? And it seemed to be a question that you were sort of wrestling with as well. And I was wondering how you sort of tackled that existential question. Yeah, well, it's 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 very tricky. Um, there are a lot of trick, tricky aspects to it. But one thing... Um, and, and you can't you can't write a book on a subject like this without coming back to this question of human exceptionalism. You know, we're making a claim here. The claim of the of the Anthropocene is that uh, humans are a fundamentally new phenomenon on this planet. Um, that that we're changing the planet in ways that nobody else has. But you know, some people see that as very arrogant. You know, that that is very self centered. And yet, clearly, there's something new about us. There's a new mode of change, but what is that? And so it's something I wrestle with a lot in the book. You know, how do we, um, how do we deal with that human exceptionalism without putting ourselves on a pedestal and being self-aggrandizing, but trying to acknowledge and get our heads around the fact that there's a new phenomenon that we're manifesting here. But one thing I think that we can legitimately say is no other species has changed the planet and been aware they were changing the planet. So right there, it's it's one way that I think we can actually use the Anthropocene itself to define human exceptionalism, which um, is, is maybe useful. Um, but then there's this whole other problem where people get offended by what they call species talk or the species view, that uh, if you're saying the whole human species is doing this, that here we've got a new chapter in the history of the earth caused by this species, then aren't you glossing over some issues of, of responsibility and social justice and, and inequity? Because it's not everybody equally. It's the rich people driving their cars and running their factories. You know, there's a different responsibility that, that, that you and I have compared to somebody in um, some African village that, that doesn't have electricity and, um, you know, running water. Um, so if, if we're using this, this species talk, then aren't we um, sort of getting ourselves off the hook? Aren't we glossing over some um, issues, some important issues of, uh, of global justice? And, and those are really interesting questions. You know, when you say we are changing the planet, who do we mean by we? So I talk about that, and I basically conclude that actually species talk is important, and it is valid. We have to recognize the inequities. In fact, solving some of those inequalities are going to be important for us solving the basic Anthropocene dilemma. We're not going to um, really be able to address energy and climate without also addressing issues of global justice. So they're very closely related. And yet the species view has value. If you look historically, it's very clear that there's a new player on this planet and it's homo sapiens and that we are doing we in that sense are doing new things that we have to reckon with so i think it's sort of a false dichotomy to put um this uh the species view against the uh the, the local view i think we really need both and that a mature discussion of these issues um it doesn't just pit one against the other. It's uh, we're, our brains are hopefully large enough to hold both those concepts uh, in our minds at once and and proceed to the into the future with a uh, with an awareness of the local particular 
<laughs> say me that again, proceed into the future with the view of the, the, the local particulars as well as the uh, global problems we confront that do require global solutions. Uh, David Grinspoon, thank you so much. Uh, the book is Earth in Human Hands, Shaping Our Planet's Future, released December 6th, 2016. Uh, David's also going to be uh, giving talks about the, about the book, about the Anthropocene. You can follow those dates at funkyscience.net. You can find him online on Twitter at Dr. Funky Spoon, or you can also jump on the Facebook page for the book, Earth in Human Hands. David, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. It's been fun talking to you. That's it for this episode of Generation Anthropocene. If you have any comments or feedback about the show or any story ideas, please get in touch. You can email us at genanthropocene at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, at genanthropocene. Our show is produced by Miles Trayer, Leslie Chang, and me, Mike Osborne. Additional production help this week from Jackson Roach and Isha Sally. As always, we want to thank Tom Hayden and Pam Madsen. Our theme music is by Maserati, and our website is genanthro.com. That's G-E-N-A-N-T-H-R-O.com.